Well, thanks, Liddy, uh, for reading that for us. Um, it's, it's good to be with you guys. I feel like I've uh, been preaching to cameras recently, and so it's nice to see you in person. Thanks for coming. <laughs> How good is it to hear God's Word and to, to sit around it together? Uh, why don't we pray that God would help us to understand it this morning? Oh, Father, we thank you for gathering us once again this morning, and we do thank you for your Word, uh, through which you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. We ask that you would help us now by your spirit to listen and to understand it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, two steps forward, one step backward. You may have heard the old adage, two steps forward, one step backward. I feel like it, it relates to a lot of our, our habits or things in life that we're trying to achieve. Uh, two steps forward and one step backward. Uh, for me, I've recently tried to get exercising a little bit more, and I feel like, great, I'm making some strides, making some strides, and then on Friday, I um, decided not to go to boot camp. So I'm like, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. Uh, it seems to me that as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, uh, the disciples have continually developed in their character traits, but they have kind of taken two steps forward and one step back. So it's been a week now since Peter gave that pivotal answer to Jesus. Who do you say I am? Jesus asks. Who do you, Peter? Who do you say I am? And Peter responds with, you are the Messiah. And now, perhaps Jesus is thinking, all right, we're finally making progress with these fishermen. You know, it's taken a while. These miracles are paying off. They're recognizing who I am. But it soon becomes apparent that actually Peter's picture of messianic reign is somewhat different to God's big picture. Two steps forward, one step back. Peter was anticipating this day of the Lord, and it's a day that Malachi tells us has two outcomes. A day where the wicked will be downtrodden and the righteous will jump for joy. Take a look with me. It's on the screen. Malachi 4 says this, For the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble, the day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from a stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies." Well, friends, if you're not familiar with your Bibles, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And this is the last chapter of the Old Testament. It's clear, I think, from this passage that final judgment is what is to take place next. And this is what the people of Israel had been waiting for. This is what Peter had been waiting for. A final battle that would see God's people vindicated and restored to glory. A battle that would have a mighty leader, a warrior king. And yet Jesus has begun talking about the need for this son of man to suffer and be killed, hasn't he? It doesn't sound like victory. That's not how it's supposed to play out. Jesus, you've got it all wrong. Two steps forward, one step backwards. But see, here's the thing. What if that final day was split in two? What if there were two arrivals of this Messiah? What if the Messiah showed up to fulfill Old Testament prophecy in ways unexpected by Peter? And so as we move now into chapter 9 today, it's this confusion that of Jesus' first and second coming that Mark is trying to clear up for us, I think. 
Peter is clearly confused, and perhaps you are too, and that's fine. I'm glad we're here thinking through this together. But Jesus is going to take Peter and his two mates for a road trip. He's going to take them for a road trip to witness true glory. Pick it up with me at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. Yet, when they got to the top of this mountain, they were joined by others. Verse 4, Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, why would these old blokes be up the top of the mountain? (laughs) What's so significant about these Old Testament characters of Elijah and Moses as they gather at the top of this mountain? Well, for starters, uh, both of these guys are considered prophets in their time. So Moses, he he was the prophet who spoke against Pharaoh in the Exodus account. Uh, Elijah, who spoke against the evil king uh, Ahab of Israel. And in Deuteronomy, Moses recounts what God told him in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. He says this, God speaking, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. In Deuteronomy, Moses is saying, hey, there's there's coming another prophet like me. And Elijah is a very well-known prophet of the Old Testament. And do you know that there's only one passage where Elijah and Moses appear together in the Bible? It's Malachi chapter 4. Keep reading with me from verse 4. It's on the screen. Malachi goes on, Remember the instructions of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. You see, uh, Moses and Elijah are together joint preparers of this final prophet that is to come. Their presence on that mountain, talking with Jesus, helps Peter and the others to see that Jesus isn't Elijah. He's the promised Moses-like prophet that has been spoken of in Deuteronomy. Jesus is the culmination of a purposeful revelation of God's Son with the history of Israel. And if what the disciples saw on top of that mountain was a glimpse of Jesus' final state of glory, then Moses and Elijah function to announce the end. And speaking of mountains, there's a funny thing that takes place with mountains in the Bible. I don't know if you noticed in verse 2, we're not just up any mountain, it's specifically a high mountain, we're told. We don't get told exactly which mountain they went up, but it's most likely one called Mount Hermon. It's, it's the logical mountain that's within a six-day kind of journey from Caesarea Philippi. It's, it's higher and less populated than other mountains in the area. But there's something about mountains in the Bible where events take place. I don't know if you've noticed that or considered it. Where was Moses when he received the commandments? Up Mount Sinai. The book of Exodus even says that when he came down from Mount Sinai, having met with God, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. But not just Moses, but Elijah was seen and recorded up mountains as well. You may recall Mount Carmel, where the glory of God was revealed. Because so many of the Israelites had turned from God, Elijah had begged God to make himself known by consuming the sacrifice prepared on the mountain. Elsewhere in the Bible, this mountain is a place where God and humanity encounter each other, where God reveals himself to humanity 
And that's what takes place. A transformation of Jesus right before their eyes. A revealing of divine glory. And this revealing has two features of it. Uh, One visual and one audible. All the AV guys have woken up, they're like, oh, AV. So we've got two two moments that take place on top of this mountain. Reading on from verse 2, Jesus was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launder on earth could whiten them. Jesus is transfigured before their very eyes. His appearance and, and even his clothes become radiant, dazzling, white, complete transformation. Makes me think that heaven's going to have a good laundry service, hey? <laughs> uh, but this, this, friends, is a glimpse of glory, of true glory which they can behold. See, these disciples are seeing Jesus from God's perspective, as truly divine in all his glory. It's a picture of the end Yet it's only a glimpse. And this is what they're grappling with. This is what they need to wrap their heads around to shift their understanding. See, if if previously in chapter 8, we've been shown how the disciples should think about Jesus, now the disciples are invited to, to behold his true nature, to be in awe of this divine God man, Jesus. It's, it's not that his transfiguration uh, changes Jesus' nature, as in like he wasn't divine and now he's just become divine. No, no, it's rather the outward visible transformation of his appearance which accords with his inward nature. And so the transfiguration of Jesus is a divine revelation to them. And it's modeled after that great revelation of God in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai. It provides divine assurance of the ultimate reality, the end. It's the primary momentary representation of a glorious future event. And so, as they're squinting from all the radiance of their eyes, the climax of this whole event is when a heavenly voice speaks from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's the voice of God speaking similar words that were spoken at Jesus' baptism. Although, notice that at Jesus' baptism, the declaration was directed at Jesus. You are my beloved son. But here, the declaration reveals his sonship to the disciples. God is saying, this, this is my son. And the instruction is to listen, to hear what he has to say. Peter, later on, uh, recorded in, in Acts by Luke, uh, he, he, speaking about Jesus as the glorified servant, uh, recounts those words from Deuteronomy, but having uh, gone through this experience. And so in Acts 3.22, he says this, he says, uh, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to everything he tells you. Peter has clearly put the two and two together by the time we get to Acts. Because not only has this prophet like Moses come to show up and do something amazing, he's actually showing up with new information. And we ought to believe it. Because Jesus comes and brings the fullness of the gospel, not as Peter expected, because that final day is split in two. As the disciples and Jesus are coming down the mountain, Jesus reminds them of his upcoming suffering. Read with me in verse 9. He says this, As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one that they, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
there it is again. The Son of Man is going to die and rise again. In fact, it's that very resurrection event that these disciples can then speak of what they have witnessed up the mountain. Once the resurrection takes place, then you may tell of this event of the transfiguration. For the disciples, Jesus was the Messiah, but but there was no room in their thinking for a suffering, dying, rising Messiah. But friends, the way to glory is through suffering. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he wants his disciples to understand. All of history is moving towards that glorious day. Yet God has chosen to split that day in two. And so we live in this tension, don't we? We live in this overlapping of kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. We live in the now, but not yet. I know a a guy that's a, a demolition engineer. Quite a fun uh, profession if you're an engineer looking to get into something. Um, And and I think that's a helpful illustration, as as I've heard it being spoken of, as thinking about this uh, now but not yet tension. If you've seen a building being demolished, you might have seen them on YouTube. Uh, It's standing upright, and they put explosives around the bottom. Everyone stands way back. They get a camera, and they press the button, and you see the, the puffs of smoke go as all the detonation goes off at the bottom of the foundations of the building. And it's done in such a way that the building is going to collapse in on itself and do so safely. But I don't know if you've noticed, there's a slight pause once all the foundations have been blown out before it starts to fall. It's the pause before the drop. And friends, that's what our world is like. The foundations are shot through. They've been blown out. It's going to end. And yet we're in this moment of the pause before the drop. The pause where we have this moment to respond to Jesus and what he's done. The pause before the drop. The kingdom of God has come. And the kingdom is overlapping. We've seen true glory. And we've seen the beloved son. But now another son appears on the scene. Jesus and the three disciples there reunited with the other nine disciples. And we meet a son who is far, far from glorious. One who is brought by his father. It's the description the father gives of his son's illness. It's quite graphic. This, this boy is possessed by a spirit. has caused a loss of speech. He's got these seizures that are accompanied by foaming of the mouth, grinding of the teeth, body shakes, the whole works. In Jesus' absence, the man has brought his possessed son to the disciples for healing. That makes sense that the disciples had fully expected to be able to exercise the the demon out of the boy. After all, this is what they had been commissioned to do, right? We read that back in chapter 3. And they have been successful at it as well in chapter 6. But for some reason, for this boy, they couldn't. They couldn't drive out the demon. And we, as readers, need to ask ourselves, why is that? Why is, this pub- why is this puzzling story about a failed miracle put here for us? And that's exactly what the disciples asked Jesus in private in verse 29. This, and Jesus says to them, verse 29, this kind can only come out by nothing but prayer. Now, it's, it's hard to conceive that the dif- disciples just kind of forgot to pray, right? Like, Oh, that's right, we should, have, we should have prayed, then it might have worked. <laughs> I knew we forgot something. No, no, I take it that Jesus' answer actually probes deeper into the object 
of their prayers. Because prayer is simply faith articulated. I'll say that again. Prayer is faith articulated. And it seems that the disciples had come to believe that the power granted to them was now inherent in themselves. So so they no longer depended prayerfully on God for the miraculous. And and so their, their failure showed that they had misplaced their faith. They had faith in themselves. They were relying on their own power, and in doing so, had borrowed God's glory apart from Jesus. They needed to trust, to depend on Jesus, not themselves. And how often is that our mistake too? We so easily shift our faith back to our own abilities instead of trusting the one who who has our back. There's lots that we could dig into in this story, but I wanted to come back to the response of the father. Would you take a look with me at verse 24? Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. See, belief is not the absence of unbelief. Faith is not always without doubt or unbelief. I'm going to say you don't even have to have 100% certainty to believe in Jesus. It's not actually required. I take it that you can be a Christian if you simply have a better reason to trust in Christ than to not trust in Christ. Now, you may still have questions and unanswered issues that go both ways, but you decide, I will trust in you, Lord. It's the decision to trust. That's where faith comes in. It doesn't mean it's, it's blind. You have reasons for faith. But, it, but you don't have to prove everything of Christianity in order to believe in Jesus. It doesn't mean that you have to answer every single question of Christianity. You simply need to take up your cross and follow him. I think it's most clearly seen in the disciples. They clearly don't understand what's going on. They can't explain it. They can't quite wrap their heads around it all. But their discipleship does not depend on their knowledge and understanding. Their discipleship depends on continuing to follow where Jesus leads. And so that, that might be you here today. You might be dipping your toe into Christianity. And I think my challenge to you would be, what's stopping you from trusting Jesus? What's stopping you from acknowledging Jesus as the Lord of your life today? He's the one who made you. He's the one who suffered for you. He's the one who's calling you to follow him. You know, I once knew a girl who was in a similar situation. She was checking out the claims of Christianity for months and months uh, she, she loved hanging out with Christians. Uh, she was trying to learn all she could about Jesus, who he was and, and what he'd come to do. But she kept feeling like she just didn't have the answers for everything, like there were still pieces missing of her picture of God. And yet she, she knew if you asked her that Jesus died for her sins and that she was forgiven. If she had good reason to trust Jesus. She believed she needed to ask God to help her in her unbelief. And you know, I ended up marrying that girl. You don't have to prove everything in order to believe Jesus. Well, we've seen true glory atop a mountain. And we've seen that failed miracles were a result of borrowed glory. And the theme of servanthood continues to echo throughout Mark's gospel. And here, towards the end of chapter 9, Jesus wants to remind his disciples that human values 
are not necessarily kingdom values. They arrive back at the hometown of Jesus in Capernaum, and, and the disciples' dreams of dominion need to be domesticated. For those who take up their cross to follow Jesus, they will discover glory in service to God. And Jesus is our example in this. He's the ultimate servant. Mark goes on to record for us multiple ways in which we put away divisiveness. You see, the disciples had been arguing about who was the greatest in verse 34. But Jesus flips it on their head and says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. Well, next, they argued about whether this other man was a part of them or not. And Jesus says, whoever is not against us is for us. That anyone who does the work of Christ is a brother and sister. Friends, it's the upside-down world of God's kingdom where life comes through death. Jesus is saying, first means being last. It means being the servant of of all. That's where discipleship is heading. That's where we should be growing. Greatness isn't measured by our possessions. It's weighed by what you're giving away. Following Jesus is a lifestyle. Jesus is who we become more and more like Christ. It's for Jesus' glory that we serve. It's Jesus who gets the glory as we're transformed by his spirit at work in us, serving those around us. And so there's this strange list of hyperbolic images at the end of chapter 9. It's supposed to help us, I think, understand the seriousness of sin and the satisfaction of knowing Jesus. I take it that as we grow in our love and knowledge of God, we'll grow in our awareness of sin in our lives and we'll strive to put sin to death. That's what Jesus died for. That's We might enter the kingdom of God, his kingdom, because of the blood spilt by him on the cross. For us. So we get to verses like verse 47. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Friends, dismembering yourself is not the practical application of this message, right? <laughs> the point's pretty clear. Not dismembering others, but about us being members of his body. Not going off at people, but, but preserving the relationships we have with them. Not cutting people off, but welcoming, welcoming others in, even little ones. Even if it's at excruciating costs. If it costs you an arm and a leg. <laughs> we have salt by having peace with one another. Because greatness in God's upside-down kingdom is about being the servant of all. And being the servant is very costly. And suffering must precede glory. Suffering must precede glory for Jesus. Yet we glory in our suffering, in our suffering because of Jesus. One preacher puts it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And having recognized Jesus as the King, the Christ, Mark has immediately drawn our attention to the true glory of Jesus' divinity here in chapter 9. It's not a borrowed glory, but the glory of a servant who will lay down his life for his people. It's one who deals finally and fully with the problem of sin through ultimate suffering on the cross on our behalf. That's what we'll be looking at on Friday as we come back for Easter. 
For it's at the cross that the kingdom of God is inaugurated, where our glorious king is crowned, where Jesus is most glorified, our suffering servant and risen king. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we've uh, paused to take a glimpse at your glory this morning, we want to thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his patience and long-suffering with us. Thank you for the way in which he's revealed himself to us. Lord, as we uh, consider the way in which uh, we so often mistrust you, help us not to steal or borrow your glory but help us to bring you glory in the way that we live our lives. Would you help us to put sin to death and in doing so, Father, uh, give us great encouragement as we suffer through this life, knowing the life to live comes with you. Lord, we ask that you would help us to continue to, to be people who express hospitality to one another and invite those amongst us as we serve them for your glory. And pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.